One more time for me. Good morning. If you got your Bible with you, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. We're going to spend some time there this morning in uh, verses 2 through 13 in Mark chapter 9. So go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can certainly Google it. Mark chapter 9, we'll be using the English Standard Version. I'll give you a quick introductory and review, uh, and then we're going to pray and get started. Uh, so here's what happened last week, if you weren't with us. We, we recognize where we are in the book. This is the fulcrum. It's the middle. The, after the, these two stories, the, the, really the pace of the storytelling picks up. Things start happening quickly. And the theme of the Gospel of Mark is the question, who is Jesus? It's a question we all have to answer, who he is and what he's done and how we respond to it. And so we have here in the middle, last week, Jesus tells us who he is. The disciples, uh, excuse me, he asks, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, we, we say you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the chosen one. And he says that he is. Last week he says it, this week he's going to show it. And then truly from here on, uh, when I'm back up in the series in November, things move quickly. Jesus' face turns toward the cross, towards Jerusalem. From my favorite novels, the Sherlock Holmes language would be, the game is afoot. Like after this, we move. Like it gets really quick from here on the Gospel of Mark. So that's what we're going to do today. Last week he told us, this week he shows us who he is, and there's some implications we can all learn from that. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get started in verse 2 of Mark chapter 9. Lord, I ask that you'd bless this time around the word. It is the, it is the center of what we do. We're, st- we're still going to sing today. We're still going to have some time around the table of the Lord. This is, this is where the power is. The power is the word. The power to change us, to change our minds, change our hearts, to change what we do on Monday morning when our head comes off the pillow. I feel the weight of it. I pray that. Our folks, the sweet people of Beachwood Church and those visiting with us, just that, that you would put in our hearts deeply that what we're about to do is important. Learning the word's important. That it forms us. So Lord, help me to, to do the job of it uh, well. That you'd help me to calm my own heart, my own mind. As you've ministered to me through this text, I pray that it will minister to others as we spend these next 30 or 35 minutes together around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 2, excuse me, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And Jesus led Peter, James, and John up a high mountain by themselves. We'll take a quick pause here and talk about our setting and some themes that we need to understand as we get started. So six days after Jesus confirms for them, yep, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've all been waiting for. He takes them up on a high mountain. If you are a Jewish reader reading this, you know the imagery of high mountain is very important. As in, their ears would have perked up when they heard it. Because high mountains throughout the scripture, you can find this if you go read your Bibles, uh, you will find there's a literary theme that high mountains is where God meets his people. So when you have the Garden of Eden, it is actually pictured as a mountain garden. It's where God walks with his people in the cool of the day. Very early on in the story of Scripture, we have Mount Moriah where God calls out Abraham and he says, you're going to be my people. We're going to have a a people made for you and a nation. And then Abraham takes his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice his own son and God meets them there on that mountain. 
when Moses brings the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea into the Promised Land, he takes them to Mount Sinai, and that's where he goes up to get the tablets of the law. It's where the people of God sat at the bottom of that mountain, and up at the top of that mountain was a cloud, a presence that was the Lord at Sinai. There's Mount Horeb, where Elijah, in a really defeated moment, he's on Mount Horeb, and that's where God comes to him in a still, small voice to meet with his people. We could go on with the Mount with Mount Zion and its, its, uh, its significance. And then ultimately at the end of this book, Mount Calvary, the most significant mountain for all of us. And so it should be a cue for you. We know that Jesus is taking them up on a mountain. And all throughout Scripture, that means something important is about to happen. So the rest of verse 2, as Mark does, he says it super quickly. But let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. Here's the very important thing that happens up on that mountain. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So try to imagine the scene, if you would. They're up on a mountain. There is a mountain there at Caesarea Philippi that's about 9,000 feet elevation. It might have been that mountain, so quite the hike uh, up there. So I imagine it's nighttime. Uh, I've been hiking more this year, and when I try to go to places for sunrises, it does strike me how dark it is when you're out in the wilderness. And so they're probably up on a high place. It's quite dark and it's quite quiet, I would imagine. And out of nowhere, Jesus starts glowing. There's a, his face, Matthew tells us in his version of this, if you just turn a couple pages to the left, you can read his version. It says his face is shining. His clothes are whiter than anything they've ever seen. And so this person that they've seen do miraculous things, he is metamorphosis, is the actual word. He is uh, transfigured. He's the same, but made in a different form. And it's something that they would have never seen. His face is glowing. I imagine it as terrifying. I, I think it's important to remember in reading scripture, how people respond to angels. In the Bible, people don't see angels and think they're beautiful. They're usually really scared. Like, remember Luke 2, the Christmas narrative, when there are shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and and lo, the angel of the Lord comes upon them. They were sore afraid, is what the King James Version says. And so however, uh, the the glory of an angel to make people scared, whatever that is, Jesus is going to have more. He is God in the flesh, so he's become radiant. We have this image of a there's a there's power here in and coming uh, coming forward for Jesus. There's also some imagery here I don't want you to miss. Um, so we all know like the moon doesn't give its own light, right? The moon the moon is a reflection of the sun. There's something important here that Jesus is giving off his own glory. He's not a reflection of God. He is giving off his own radiance, his own light. He is God in the flesh. That he is God made man to to dwell among us. It's actually made me think of one of my favorite Christmas hymns because Marx, again, says this so short. We, I, I had to just sit and ruminate and think about those 18 or 19 words for a long time to try to get the, uh, the effect of this. But coming up shorter than any of us probably want to realize, we're going to start singing Christmas hymns here again. And one of them is, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where you will have this lyric, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. 
So there's this idea of deity, God himself, the maker of all things, the redeemer of our soul. He veiled himself in flesh. He put on a body. And what we are getting to see here, what Peter, James, and John are getting to see here is the veil is coming down a little bit. He's letting his glory, his radiance, his godness be seen. The veil that he put on to really protect us, he's letting it drop a little and showing his cosmic glory to Peter, James, and John. And for me, this is enough. We could stop reading right now. And we could just recognize Jesus is who he says he is. He told us last week that he's the Messiah. And now we see the power of God emanating from him. And that's our Jesus that we worship and we follow him. And that's enough. But at risk of sounding like some kind of telemarketing person. But wait, there's more. There's actually a lot more than this here in this story. That it's not just this incredible thing that Jesus is showing how much of a power, uh, how much power and radiance he has in glory. So let's keep reading in verse 4 because it's not just Jesus having this radiant glory. Verse 4. And there appeared to Peter, James, and John, Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. We'll pause there for a second. So I would imagine there's fear. They're, they're scared. There's the glory of Jesus. He's shining radiantly up on this dark mountain in the middle of the night. And then they see two other people show up. And somehow they know it's Elijah and Moses. So let's talk about them really quickly. First, Moses and his significance. Moses is a symbol of the law. So we, we go back into our Old Testament. Uh, that maybe, maybe some of you don't know this, especially you younger folks. You're your Old Testament is made up of several different types of books, but one of them is the law, where God gives us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and he gives us his law. And then there's the prophets. There's from Isaiah to, to the ones that you maybe don't read about as, as much, maybe Amos and Obadiah and all those. And they have these themes of prophesying there's a Messiah coming, there's a chosen one, there's a day of the Lord. That's a big chunk of your Old Testament. And Moses shows up here as a representative of the law. Maybe the most prominent of all Jews uh, for, for the, these Jewish men, uh, Peter, James, and John. You, you probably have David. King David's a big deal. Abraham's a big deal. But then there's Moses, the lawgiver. And that's what he was thought as. He, he gives us the law. Even in this country, uh, right at the top of the Supreme Court, that's a statue of Moses. He's part of it as the, the lawgiver. And so we have this representative of God's law, and we learn from Paul, we learn from the rest of the Bible, that the law had a purpose. God gave us the law to follow, to point us, this is how, uh, how R.C. Sproul says it, to point us to God's righteousness and our wretchedness. That we see the, when we see the law and we read it, we go, man, this God is good. This, this God is holy. This God is glorious. That's what he, he demands of us is this law. He is an incredible God. But then it also points us to, we can't do that. I can't keep the law. And so I got a problem. God is good and awesome and holy, and I am not. He's righteous. I'm wretched. And so the law was always our schoolmaster, the scripture says, to teach us that lesson that God is holy and you are not. And we got a problem. So the law was always pointing somewhere. And then Elijah, he's there as a representative of all of those prophets that said there was one coming who was going to make all things right. In hundreds of years of prophesying about a holy one, the day of the Lord, Elijah is there talking to Jesus. And I don't know what the conversation is, but I imagine Elijah and Moses recognizing that here we are looking in the face of what we both were teaching. Here's 
the one who keeps the law. Here's the one that we have been talking about for literally hundreds of years. The point of Moses was Jesus. The point of Elijah is Jesus. And they're both staring at the glorious face of the one that culminates all history because the law pointed to Jesus and the prophets pointed to Jesus. And now they're all there together. Now, for these three disciples, I do imagine, like, these guys are legends. Uh, if there were like trading cards back then, like baseball cards, they'd have had the rookie year card, like Elijah and Moses. They're a very big deal. And so now they got their Messiah or their rabbi. They got Elijah, they got Moses. And I think, if I were, believe it or not, if I think if I were on the mountain, I think I would have shut up. I think I would have just, just, just enjoyed it and just taken this in. Like, this is crazy cool. But that is not what Peter does. Peter's fun, right? Peter always has something to say. And so that's what's happening on the mountain, and Peter sees it, and so he thinks he needs to talk. So verse 5, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So Peter is fun, isn't he? He's, um, I think I told you at the beginning of the series He's the primary source of the book of Mark. And so I do imagine, I can't prove it, I imagine that when Peter and Mark were at the, in a ship some, one day uh, on the water somewhere, he was telling Mark about these stories, and he was like, Mark, i got to tell you a story. Uh, we, went up on the, we went up on this mountain. Jesus started glowing. Elijah and Moses showed up, and bro, I was just terrified. Didn't know what to say. So I said, let's build some tents. That's, that's the thing that comes out. Word to the wise here, by the way. If you don't know what to say, maybe just don't say anything. But that's what Peter did. He didn't know what to say, so he said, let's build tents. Likely, what he's saying is, I want to honor you. Let's build some tabernacles. Uh, Build one for Elijah and the prophets and build a tabernacle here for the law and Moses and one for Jesus. That's likely what he's trying to say is, I want to honor this moment and honor you. And then what happens next in the story seems to be in response to that. Because in Matthew, if you just turn a few pages to the left and read it from Matthew's perspective, it, the, the language is, while Peter was yet speaking. So Peter has not finished his sentence when this next thing happens. So he almost gets interrupted. So the, the way I read it, and a lot of scholars read it, is what's about to happen next is response to Peter. Peter says, let's build tents, man. Let's build a tent for Elijah, Moses, Jesus. And then this is what happens when Peter makes that suggestion. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So let's stop there for a second. So while Peter was still speaking, he's like, Hey guys, let's build the tent too. And I imagine then this cloud starts to gather and he continues to talk about how he wants to build these tents. And somewhere as this cloud is now all around him, they're in the thick of it, that cloud speaks and says, Hey, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. When you imagine this cloud, and I hope you have an imagination for these things, don't imagine a wisp of a cloud. This is a thick presence that should have your mind, if you grew up in church like I did, go back to the Old Testament where you saw that God had taken this form before. He is a cloud in the desert leading the Jews through the wilderness. He was a cloud at the top of that mountain at Sinai, and it was a thick presence where the people were fearful of this holy God. The thick, heavy presence of God is all around them. And out of that thick presence of a cloud, God declares what Jesus said in the previous chapter, this is my son. 
He is the one you've all been waiting for. In Matthew's version, if we read that, it says that Peter, James, and John knelt. They put their faces on the ground when they heard the voice. To get grown men to react that way, I would assume this is a really intimidating, overwhelming experience. This cloud that says this is my son. They got their faces on the ground. And so God the Father makes clear with no ambiguity to Peter. There's no one like my son. If you're about to honor Elijah and Moses like you honor Jesus, you have missed it. The point is Jesus. The point is not the law of the prophets. They were always pointing to this one. Don't you dare treat them the same. This is my son. He's the one glowing. He's the point of all this. And then there is a good word here that we should hear. God says to Peter, as he would say to you, hey, this is my son. Here's what you should do to him. You should listen to him. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. So we have uh, the... Peter says, let's build you tents. God comes on the scene and says, nope, not doing that. Not going to have Elijah, Moses, and Jesus as equals. Jesus is my son. Listen to him. Verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they, which is Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John uh, no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The Matthew version of this, again, it it actually adds, um, it says that Jesus has to come over to them and touch them and say, rise, have no, have no fear. And so they hear the voice, they hit the ground, and then everything dissipates. The cloud is gone. The Elijah is gone. Jesus isn't glowing anymore. And well, Elijah and Moses are gone. And it actually takes Jesus to actually say to them, hey, rise up. You don't, to, you don't have to be scared anymore. And when they do look up, they see that reality, that all of that is gone. I would imagine their pulse is racing, and there's... There's a lot of wonder about what just happened because they got to see in this temporal earthly world, some of the veil came down and they got to see eternal things and cosmic things before them. So that's, that's the transfiguration. Now they have a conversation about it. What does all this mean? Verse 9. And as they, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they, Peter, James, and John, kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So Jesus is still focused at the end of this, focused on his mission. He needs his identity to be sealed for some more time. He even tells them, don't tell the other nine. Like these three disciples, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Which I know for me would be quite the bummer because I'm coming down the mountain going, wait till I tell Bartholomew and all the other guys what I got to see. But he says, don't tell what you, what you saw. This is the exact type, type of thing you don't want to keep a secret, but they have to keep it a, a secret for a bit. I want to stop there for one second to at least question why Peter, James, and John get to see this. At least with Peter and John, we know they wrote about this later. They wrote about their experience up on that mountain. It was formative for them. It was really important that they saw this happen. And Jesus, as he continues his ministry, he's going to get towards the end of it, as he dies, resurrects, and and then ascends into heaven, it really is Peter, James, and John that are leading the church after that, that they face those first persecutions and arrests, and they start pushing the gospel out. It does seem that this experience, this being revealed to them, the glory of Jesus being revealed to them, was given to them as a grace, as a gift, to strengthen them. That there's hard things are coming. Think back to this. I told you who I am. I've shown you who I am. And so when you know who I am, as the hard times come, 
you can continue to work through and battle through because of what I've shown you here. But in verse 10 there, you also see they're still questioning what this rising from the dead means. This is a, an issue last week. They had a problem with it. They're having an issue this week. Why does he keep talking about rising from the dead? You already told me you're the Messiah. You're supposed to have a kingdom. You're a conqueror. And also, I just saw you glow. Why, why are you talking about dying? Like, again, they still don't get it. They, they have an idea, the Jews did. They have an idea of resurrection. The, the average Jew, or at least a, a section of them, they thought all the people would rise, that there would be a, a resurrection at the end of all things. But the way Jesus is talking about it, he's talking about it as distinct for him, that he's going to have a distinct resurrection, and they still don't quite get it because of that timeline. Uh, verses 11 through 13. It's the last few verses for today. And they asked him, Peter, James, and John asked Jesus, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So they're asking the question, there's a, there's a, in Malachi there is a prophecy that says, before you can come, Elijah has to come. So why, like, why do they say that? Verse 12, And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him what they pleased as, is, as it is written of him. So the disciples know that there is this prophecy that Elijah needed to come before the Messiah comes. And so there's a totally fair um, confusion from them for a minute. Uh, and if we read the Matthew version of this, you actually find what Jesus says to them is John the Baptist was Elijah. So John the Baptist came. He was in the spirit of Elijah. He was a lot like Elijah. And so you should have seen that. He was the forerunner. John the Baptist came. All the prophecy has worked. My timeline's right. I'm not early. I I didn't come at the wrong time. I'm here at the exact right time. I'm exactly who I've been telling you I am. I am the Messiah. And so now from here on, when I'm back up in November, the work of the Messiah really accelerates. The, the, The core work of Jesus on this earth is going to accelerate from here. Last week, he told us who he is. This week, we see who he is. And then when I'm back up, let's continue that story. So that's the text for today. I have three points for you. Three things we can learn. Three things we can take from this as we go out of here today and get up tomorrow morning. Three things from the transfiguration. Number one, the promises of Jesus' glory. The promises of Jesus' glory. All of the scholars and sermons I listened to and read preparing for this they all have at least as part of their point that this transfiguration, Jesus up on the mountain, face shining, is a, a, it's supposed to be a preview for us. We're supposed to view it as something that we're going to get to see something like that and find hope in it. That when we see him, we're going to see something like they saw. That, that's one of the reasons I, I chose that we did that song just a few minutes ago. 20 minutes ago, we, we sang that my gaze will be transfixed on Jesus' face. That that's a thing that we get to do. I read this, what Peter, James, and John got to do, and I'm like, I, I want to do that. That sounds awesome. I want to see Jesus in all of his glory. Well, I get to, and you do too. There's a promise that we get from this story. We get a little preview of the glory of Jesus, and we get to take part in it. Paul writes that we should comfort each other with those words that he is coming and we shall see him and we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is and so if you see the story from peter james and john and think man that would be awesome well you just wait that's coming for you you get to see it now that should in theory that should be enough for us in comfort 
that we get to see Jesus. And that would, that would fulfill all of our longings. It's one of the reasons we, we sang today, it satisfies, like, it satisfies all my longings like nothing else can do when we sing the story of Jesus. But I mean, I'll, I'll, let's be transparent, let's be just honest. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like that should fix our longings. Like, I get to see Jesus. I get to see him in his glory. Is that supposed to affect my life right now? What does that really mean to fulfill my longings that I get to see Jesus? Why is that supposed to be such a hope? Because I have longings. I have cravings. There's some emptiness that I feel in this world. You might be thinking that. And how is seeing Jesus supposed to fulfill that? You know, the, the philosophers, especially the, the ancient Greeks, they talk about meaning and longing a ton. And in part, it's because they didn't have these, so they didn't have a way to always keep distracted so that they could not have to think about deep things. But it's actually been a struggle of the human condition for thousands of years that we wonder, why does it always feel like something's missing? Even when I get stuff I like, why is there this and stuff that I wanted. Why does it feel like just something's not quite right? There's something that I need that I'm missing. C.S. Lewis wrote about it this way. It's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes where he says, if I find that I have a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy, well, then I must conclude I was made for another world. There's nothing, there's, some, there's a lot of good here, but there's some kind of longing in all of us that hasn't been met. The secular world in, uh, in very important and, and, and good fields like mental health, they have talked about this, and they're, they're getting so close to understanding. But when you, when you don't come from a biblical worldview, you just miss. Uh, in, in that world, and mental health secular world, they tend to talk about uh, the most important thing, the most, imp- the most formative thing in your life is being connected to your makers. So your mother-father relationships are the most formative because there's something deep within us that needs to be connected to those who made us. Those of you who have already lost parents, you feel that, I would imagine. You feel the longing of not having them around. In this room where you have broken relationships with parents, you, you feel that longing. There's something not right because I'm not connected to those who made me. And they're right. The secularists are right about that relationship, but there's something even more cosmic. I want to be connected to one who really made me. The, my godly, heavenly Father, And when I don't have that, when I don't have that relationship, something's missing. And I can get all the stuff this world has to offer, but there's a deep longing in me that the only thing that can meet, meet it, the only thing that can satisfy it, is seeing Jesus. And having him, he satisfies those longings. And when we see him, what seems, I think it seems hard right now. It seems hard to think, I think it'll be awesome seeing Jesus. I don't know how that satisfies all my longings. Well, that's how. You will see your maker. You will see your redeemer. And all of those deepest longings are fulfilled in him. So there are the promises of his return. There's the promise that we will see him and we will have our deepest longings fulfilled because we will be with him forever. But then there's also a further promise, not just to be with him forever, but to be made like him. Paul writes a lot about this. I'm going to go rapid fire on some scripture for you. Uh, going back to this word transfigured. So Jesus is transfigured. That's, he metamorphosis into some kind of other image. Well, we get something like that. We will be changed when we see him. Paul writes about it like this in 1 Corinthians. He writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will, raise, will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body push, must put on immortality. All those words changed in there that we will be changed, very closely related to that word transfigured. We are going to be made more like Jesus. It's coming. Change is coming, not for just our internal longings to finally be fulfilled, but this broken world with all the cancers and divorces and all that. That's going to be gone. He's coming to make all those things right. In Philippians, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven. For from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That word, he's going to transform our lowly body, a lot like the word transfigure. It's related in its root because Jesus is coming in power to change us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes this, and we all with unveiled face, really quickly, veiled faces. Moses wore a, a veil. There was still some kind of, when he meet with God, there was a separation. But he says, we all with unveiled face, looking clearly, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We shall see him and we will be made like him for we'll see him as he is. It's good enough to see Jesus. He will fulfill all those longings and then we get more. He makes all things right. Can I ask you, long for it. Long for the coming of Jesus. And this transfiguration is just a preview, just a tiny preview of what we get to see. What we get will be even better than what Peter, James, and John got up on that mountain. So number one, there's the promises of Jesus' glory. Number two, let's take that command. When the cloud comes, P- Peter is talking about the tents, and the cloud comes and says, hey, this is my son, listen to him. And God's word to Peter right there is the same word to you. Listen to Jesus. Do that through Bible reading. Do that through prayer. Do that through the, un- the unlimited resources that we have to get to know Jesus in the modern world. We have unlimited resources on the internet for this. Take it seriously. It is not a Sunday morning from 1030 to noon project. Get to know Jesus. You couldn't get to know your spouse or any of your friends or anybody you know an hour and a half a week. doesn't work that way. Get in, get in there, and as I said last week, it's quite joyful. It's quite fun to get to know your maker. Listen to Jesus. Do it through Bible and prayer and all of those resources. Now, the command is listen to Jesus. There is an implied negation, an implied command. That is, if you're listening to Jesus, don't listen to anti-Jesus voices. Everywhere you look, someone is preaching to you. Every TV show that you have on your screen, there's a sermon being preached to you. When you turn on your radio, you turn on a podcast, whatever you have on Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Prime, whatever you're watching, there's a sermon literally everywhere you're looking. They've got a message for you. You've got secular friends and family, people quite close to you, people who want to speak into your lives. You've got social media feeds with a world full of self-help, all the media, all the media you consume. There's a lot of it that just says you're you're enough, and these this is your way forward. You don't need anybody but you. There's sermons being preached to you everywhere you turn, and a lot of them are the anti-Jesus voices. And so as 
Peter, as, as God says to Peter, and he says to you here, listen to Jesus, it also says, stop listening to anti-Jesus voices. Whether you're watching the news to something frivolous, everything you see, let's take that to the word, measure it here, because these are the words Jesus, give, Jesus gives us and has preserved for us. And where we see the world around us preaching to us, something opposite of what the word gives, we toss that out and we listen to Jesus. Listen to his voice. His voice is the voice of life. Don't listen to the secular world's voices. They are the voices that lead to death. So hear this command that God gave to Peter today. Listen to Jesus. Number one, there are the promises of Jesus' glory, that we will see him and be made like him. Number two, listen to Jesus. And then number three, as we're about to even see uh, when this series continues, here's number three, the time for quiet is over. There is such a contrast in pre-resurrection Jesus and post-resurrection Jesus. Jesus keeps telling people, it's like a theme in the first eight chapters, he keeps telling people, don't tell anybody. Like, I cast the demon out, don't tell. I just restored your sight, don't tell anybody. Now you can, now you can hear and you can speak again, just don't tell anybody. Then uh, I am the Messiah, but don't tell anybody. You saw me transfigured on this mountain and you saw me glow, but just don't tell anybody. And there is this the secrecy around who he is, and then he resurrects, and it is literally the exact opposite. Go tell the planet. Go, go therefore, preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The ethic is turned on its head. Hey, don't tell anybody. After the resurrection, there is not an ear on this planet that should not hear my name. Go. And so the time for quiet is over. The ethic has become, let's go to the world. And that's where you and I stand today. We don't stand in the don't tell anybody time. We stand in the go there for time. The time for quiet has ended. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And it's time to tell the world. And it's time to tell the world because they need us to tell them. We have answers for the things ailing this world. We have an answer for longing, and it's Jesus. We have an answer for worry. It's Jesus. We have the answer for broken hearts and broken families. We have the answer for hatred in people's hearts. We have the message to humble the proud and enliven the downtrodden. We have what the world needs because we have Jesus. So stop being silent. I have to stop being silent. You have to stop being silent. We have the hope of the world at our fingertips, and the time for quiet is over. It's time to share that and be a people. They're telling our friends, they're telling our one that we talked about last year, that we are bold enough to take what the world needs to them and share the story of Jesus. So number one, recognize the promises of Jesus' glory and what we get when he comes back. Number two, take the command, listen to Jesus, don't listen to the world around you, and then recognize the time for quiet has ended. It is time to go tell the world. I'm going to ask you to 